Take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John. John chapter 13 is where we begin today. John 13. In our series that we are calling Life Together, we are looking at instructions in the New Testament to believers, to people in churches like us. And we are looking specifically at the times where the New Testament uses a special little phrase, one another, one another. There are some 60 places in the New Testament that use this phrase, one another. In fact, there's a stack of uh, a printout of all those passages if you want to pick one up at the back table. One another. Why is one another so important? Before we get into our specific study this morning, I'd like to just review why we're doing this. Why is one another so important? Besides the fact it's used very often, what's it doing? It is explaining to us what the church really is. Because the church is our relationships with each other. Many people would probably say that what we're doing in this room right now is church. So I went to church, and they're thinking about a a service like this. In reality, what we do in this particular room is very, very little one-anothering. The one-anothering of Open Door Bible Church on a Sunday takes place mostly outside of this room, if you think of it. The relationships. I've thought sometimes, what if... if, uh, Peter, James, John, Apostle Paul were to suddenly show up at modern Open Door Bible Church besides the many technology things or whatever that might be an adjustment. What would seem the most familiar to them? If they were able to, to transport themselves in time and be at Open Door, what would seem most familiar to them? I don't think it'd be this service. I think they might wonder, why is there a stage and the other people are all looking at that guy? <laughs> they might wonder, why, why is it so organized what they do here? You know, the, the instruments, the songs, the message, maybe even who's praying. And I wonder if, though they would be most familiar, if they came to one of our adult Bible fellowships. And they'd walk into a room, and it's, it's casual, but caring. People are greeting each other, and, and people are talking about their needs, and people are praying for one another. They're sharing their lives, and then uh, different men are teaching different times, and you discuss what they're teaching. I wonder if they'd say, oh, yes, this is church. I think the things that would happen outside of this room in the halls before and after services and in all these different ministries or during the week or even not just in this building but in the community or when you meet each other at Walmart. I think those might be the things most familiar uh, to them. Now, what we do here is, is obviously not wrong, I think, because we wouldn't be doing it, right? No, this, this becomes in our culture a way to do some, a slice of what the church is about. Here's where we can do teaching in a, in a cultural way that fits us, I guess. 
based on size and culture and a lot of different things. It's, it's not wrong to have uh, organized service or to have a, uh, a live feed on Facebook or whatever else might be. We can accomplish some of the teaching purposes, some of the worship purposes. But if you think of it, and I hope you do, the things that happen outside this room are the church. God's plan for the church is that believers in Christ would live alongside other believers in Christ, accomplishing the purposes Christ gave us. That brings us to our study today as we look at another one another. We're going to look at the term love one another. Love one another. Of the 60 times the term one another is used, a fourth of them, approximately 15 or so, say love one another. So it's the most basic, most common one another. And so we're going to take actually two weeks to study this important phrase in these passages because it's most basic core to the relationships God is calling us to in the body of Christ. So in John 13, and I was already in the next passage, I see. John 13 is where Jesus is talking to the disciples on the night before he went to the cross. We studied this section uh, somewhat intensively uh, about a year ago. And as he goes, before he goes to the cross, he has this long discussion, sometimes called the upper room discourse, and talks to the disciples about what's coming, but most important, what's important, he thinks, for them. Here's what he says in verse 34. A new command I give to you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Here's three of the Phrases, love one another. So keep in mind, who is in the room? It's not the whole world. It's the 12 disciples who are going to transform the world as they launch the church. And what they are to do is to be sure to love one another, which is so important because if you know the context, earlier that evening they had been arguing about which one of them was the greatest. So loving one another must be something very opposite than arguing which one is the greatest. A new command I give you. How is this a new idea? Because love is present in the Old Testament. In fact, uh, going back to... Someone could help me. There we go. There we go. Uh, the old, to the Old Testament. Um, backing up. Leviticus 19.18 says, Love your neighbor as yourself. Same idea, love your neighbor as yourself. To love your neighbor as yourself is similar to what we sometimes call the golden rule. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. It's assumed that we love ourselves. So if we love ourselves, that means we're going to take care of ourselves. So the Old Testament was calling people to treat others the way you'd like to be treated. If you don't like your sister to hit you, don't hit your sister. You know, it's, it's kind of a a human way to see love. But Jesus didn't say, love your neighbor as yourself. He, he, he raised the bar when he says, love one another as I have loved you. What does that have in mind? What is agape love? It's, it's, a, it's a, a fresh meaning that Jesus brought to that term because essentially what he was saying is that love is Sacrifice. That's what we're going to see today, that love is 
sacrifice. And so in this evening, earlier in chapter 13, we see one way in which love is sacrifice. What had Jesus done during the meal? He had washed their feet. Now we might say that's a small sacrifice, but it was a sacrifice. And we know it was a sacrifice because none of the other disciples were willing to do it. They were all too proud. They were not going to put themselves in a position of a servant and wash some their, 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 their colleagues, their peers' dirty feet because that would put them under them in, in the mindset of the culture, to, to wash their feet. So it's Jesus who did exactly that. And the greater, obviously, became a servant to the lesser. So love one another as I have loved you means to serve. That's, service is the first sacrifice. And it's a humility to serve in this way. It's a huge mental step when we put ourselves less because we always are trying to be more. So to put ourselves less is the first sacrifice. That is love. So as we think about loving one another in a sense of humility, service, it, it's a very practical thing. If everybody's out enjoying a you know, social event and everybody's on the deck and they're enjoying the sunshine, the conversation, the food and the drinks, and, and, and the baby needs changed. Someone has to leave the enjoyment to do the lesser enjoyable thing. Someone has to, at your job, do the lesser things. Some, there might be a, a party going on there. There might be an awards banquet. But, but there are certain things that had to get done at the office. And, and to voluntarily say, I will go do what is unseen but has to be done, is a, is a sacrifice to be the servant. So maybe they're receiving awards and, and, and we will never be noticed, but that's a sacrifice. So that's one aspect of loving in a sacrificial sense. Washing feet. But when Jesus said, love as I have loved, I loved you, I don't think he's just looking backwards. I think he is also looking forward. In the context, verse 31, he talks about how the Son of Man is going to be glorified. What's he talking about? Now is the Son of Man glorified. I mean, like, like within hours, he's going to be crucified. Then within a couple of days, he's going to be raised, and he will be glorified. So as he's thinking of loving telling them to love one another as I have loved you, we know he's thinking of the cross. In fact, later that evening, he refers, well, I'm sorry, he refers both to the past as well as the future. If then your Lord and teacher have washed, if I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So that's the first, that's the, the backward look at the humility of sacrifice. But looking forward, he said, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Now, they may not have caught it that evening before the cross, but you can bet John especially caught it afterwards because he writes about it in 1 John. There's no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends, and that's what he was about to do. Jesus knew that he had left heaven to come to earth. The glories of heaven, whatever that entails... Jesus sacrificed that to drop down into dusty Judea and live a human life there with limitations that he didn't have before, voluntarily submitting to the Father's plan, subjecting himself to the ridicule of the people 
the leaders of the nation, experiencing then pain, torture, and death on the cross. Because love is sacrifice. And that has become the meaning of agape love. A word is defined by how it's used, and Jesus uses this term to express a, a top-down love, if you will, a one-way love where the, where the Father loves, the, the Son loves the world in a sacrificial way. To love is to sacrifice for someone else. So, as a church family, as part of this church family, how are you sacrificing for one another. At first thought, we might say, love, oh yeah, I love one another, and we, there's this kind of affection we have for each other, hopefully. But how are we sacrificing for one another? Where we stop thinking about, what do I like about this church for me? And instead think of, how is God calling me to sacrificially love the people here? That is loving one another. Yesterday morning, a pretty large team of people were doing work inside, dusting, putting out the sod, moving the the cement things got moved, the parking uh, block things. All kinds of work, muddy. Okay, somebody had to lay aside what they could have done on a Saturday morning to do this for us. Sacrifice. Someone who's serving in the nursery is doing so, taking care of babies so that we can have peace and quiet in here. Uh, Somebody who is um, listening to how someone else hurts instead of telling the story of their own hurt is loving sacrificially. Uh, The building that's there was all built with personal money that could have purchased things that are newer and better, but instead were given to the Lord and to the people who will be hopefully growing spiritually the next 10, 40 years till Christ comes back. It's sacrificial. It's sacrificial when you compliment or encourage someone when you're aching for encouragement and compliments. Yourself. Do you see how church life is meant to be sacrificial? That's what gives the, the richness to the body of Christ as he intended it to be. If, if the things I just described seem normal to you, you are not normal. If if it seems normal to serve, sacrifice in this ways, that's not normal, that's godliness. Godliness is to be like God, and Jesus is calling us to be like him, and he was God. So the more we sacrifice in in loving someone one way, service, the more like Christ we are. If you love that way, the word gets out. Verse 35. By this, all men out there, there's 12 of us in the room, but all those out there, all men will know that you are my disciples. You're following me if you love one another. 
our world is mostly selfish. It's our human nature to manipulate life to our advantage. What's your, your angle? We assume there's an angle. What's in it for me? The world trades favors. And, and, and we may be served for the recognition or we give to get our name on a plaque. Trading, trading favors is fine. We, we, we work to get a paycheck. But to sacrifice will turn heads. Because that's, that's a whole different thing. And, and, it, and what Jesus is saying is that the first step of evangelism, sharing about Christ, is to sacrifice living like Christ. Christianity has not survived because we have marketed the advantages Christianity has survived and thrived in spite of persecution and opposition because it stands out as sacrificial. While salvation is free, that's the offer. It is, it, its draw is that it cost God himself the death of his son. It's the sacrifice. It's the sacrifice that motivates his followers to sacrifice. It's the sacrifice that appeals to a world. So no matter what else is happening in the world, no matter what opposition, and the opposition is growing, isn't it? Our world will not be able to ignore sacrificial living. There is nothing that can stop the impact of the gospel when we live out the gospel with sacrificial love. The gospel will thrive exponentially to the degree we live sacrificially. Jesus spoke these words as he was about to go to the cross. This would happen. He would arise, and his followers, these men in the room, would do exactly what he just described. And they would take the gospel out, and they would plant churches, and churches would grow. And the question is, would it be long-lasting? And so we're going to fast forward from the Gospel of John to the epistles or letters of John. So turn with me to 1 John. It's towards the end of your New Testament, before uh, Peter, Jude, Revelation. 1 John, first of three letters he wrote. John, when he, when, when the events of John, I should say, the events of John's Gospel when he was with Christ, John had to be a young man, probably in his 20s. The epistles of John reflect the Christian world about A.D. 90, some 55 to 60 years later. So do the math, and, and John's a man in his 80s, uh, maybe a pro- who knows how old he is exactly, because we don't have these exact, we just know the, the distance between them uh, with some confidence. So how has the uh, love one another worked? Has anything changed? It's remarkable to compare the Gospel of John with 1 John. John writes them both. And he writes them both later in life. But in one, he is recording what Jesus actually said. That's the Gospel of John. But in the epistles of John, he's putting it in his own words. And it's refreshing to see that when John puts it in his own words, he just simply reflects what Jesus has already said. What a thing to be known for is that, that what you say sounds a lot like Jesus. And that's exactly what we'll find. First John 4, verse 7 and 8. Dear friends, or beloved, a form of the word agape love, actually. Beloved, let us love one another, for love 
comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is not uh, doublespeak. Every, every phrase is important. Love one another because it comes from God. Keep in mind, this is important to understand First John. It's written to believers, probably to a variety of churches uh, in what's, what's called Asia Minor. So that would be like the church of Ephesus and Colossae and some of the related churches that were planted originally, of course, by Paul. So the people who are receiving this, they have been churches in existence a while, 40, 50 years, which is actually how long Open Door has, has been in existence. So church life isn't new. Uh, spiritual truth isn't new. But there is a whole new generation of believers, just as, as, as Open Door has a whole new generation of believers, or you may have come just in the last decade or so. So John is teaching them about the Christian life, basically talking to them about the relationship with God and the relationship with one another. But John's an old man now. In fact, I'd like you to look first at 1 John 1, verse 3. John's an old man now, one of the very few who probably were still around who had actually seen and been with Jesus Christ. You got the time frame here? So in chapter 1, verse 3, he says, We, there must have been some other apostles his age, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So we actually saw and heard Jesus. And I'm going to tell you about it, he says, because of the fellowship issue. Our fellowship, relationship with one another, and our fellowship with Jesus Christ. So there are two kinds of fellowship, vertical and horizontal. And so the, 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 the book of 1 John, all five chapters, are mostly concerned with our relationship with God and how it becomes and transforms our relationship with one another. Keep in mind, this is church truth. One of the key words that he uses in 1 John is the word abide. Abide. It's the same term that John heard Jesus use in John 15. Abide in me as I abide in you. You'll bear much fruit. Uh, I'm the vine. You're the branches. You need to abide in me. Okay, what, is that, what was Jesus talking about there? He was talking about us drawing close to Christ. That word by the same man is written continuously in the book of 1 John. Now, this is something you have to be careful about when you're reading 1 John, depending on the Bible translation you're using. Because very often, uh, some translations, mine included, will, I think, mistranslate the word abide, and they use the word live. We'll live in him. And we won't go to the examples uh, right now. But it gives the impression as if John is saying, this is how you know if someone is saved. That's not the subject. It's saying, this is how you know if someone is abiding in Christ and drawing from a relationship with Christ. Okay? That'll be a little important later as we look at some other verses in First John. But he's talking, first of all, about abiding in Christ, drawing our strength from our relationship with Christ. Now, the second kind of fellowship that he alluded to was our fellowship is with one another, our relationship with one another. And the thing that happens is as we are abiding in Christ in this relationship, we will 
love one another. So as we are experiencing the love of God for us, we find ourselves strangely loving other people, however strange they might be. Because when we are experiencing the love of God vertically, we love the people God loves. Not surprising. If, some, if, somebody, if your very good friend introduces you to somebody that's a good friend of theirs, you kind of just start out liking them. I mean, you, you give them all the benefit of the doubt because if you're a good friend of my good friend, we must, we must be a great person. And so we can love all those who God loves. How? Beloved, let us love one another because love comes from God. So we see both the vertical and then how it affects the horizontal. Love comes from God. Now, that might sound like a cliche practically. Love comes from God. It's actually very important. It's a, the fact that love comes from God should be a huge relief to us because we don't naturally love one another. We, we naturally will struggle with loving at least some of the people, even in this room. That, that, that's normal. In fact, the more you get to know the people of Open Door Bible Church, the less you might like them. Because it'll go from, they have some annoying idiosyncrasies, to if you really get to know them, they actually have sinful flaws. And so there's this tension. But the very people we say, oh, we love them, we're going to struggle to love because now as we get to know them better, we discover their sin So the big relief is this. Love doesn't come from me. Love comes from God. And so when I'm struggling to love one another, and we will, whether it's in our family, our marriage, a ministry team at church, whatever it is, oh, but love comes from God. So, so yeah, I'm struggling to even like this person. But love comes from God. I can talk to God about needing his love because love comes from God. He energizes our love. When we, uh, the building process lasts over years, the electricians kept coming and doing additional things. They put in equipment on the outside of the building and the inside of the building, and there's wires going everywhere and, and these boxes, and they eventually put the fixtures on. But you know what? It would still be just as dark as can be at night except that we energies came and they energized the whole thing. Apart from that, all of that material that's been added to the building, the wiring, would be useless until the power company energized it. And and we can have all the relationship programs. We can have all the, the things organized and still not love one another because love comes from God. And we need to know that when we're struggling to love. There's even more at stake. Middle of verse 7, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God, but whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Here's what's at stake. Knowing God. Whether or not we love one another in this sacrificial, God-given sense, will determine if we get to know God. Someone who is loving one another that way has been born of God. They're evidence of their new birth, the born word, 
But they also, more than that, they know God. And the flip side, he just emphasizes the knowing. If you do not love, you don't know God. When he speaks of knowing God, he is not talking about knowing about God. You can go to seminary and learn about God. This is something, this is a different kind of knowledge. When John, in the first John, uses the word knowing God, he's not talking about are you saved or not. He's talking about the same thing as abiding. Do you know him? Do you know him? Sometimes we use a little phrase, you know, they get me. You know, they, in other words, they understand me, right? They get me. Do you get God? Do you understand how God thinks? Because the way to get God, understand him, is by loving one another because that's what he does all the time. Whoever does not love doesn't know God. Some would say that's the unbeliever. It's not the subject. John's writing to Christians. He's he's forcing Christians to evaluate the relationship with God and say, are you in fellowship with God or not? If you walk in the light as he is in the light, then you have fellowship with him. If you confess your sins, you're open about it. You're saying, God, this is where I fail. Then you're going to experience this continual cleansing of the blood of Jesus Christ. That those, those are privileges of the believer who is seeking to know him, seeking to abide in him, seeking to walk in fellowship. These are, these are synonymous terms. He's calling them to know God. Some married couples drift apart. They're in different worlds. They, they stop taking interest in one another. Uh, they ignore the conflicts. They don't... And, and they drift apart, and, and whether they divorce or not, sometimes you'll hear somebody say, I don't think he or she even knows me anymore. How sad. They're still officially married, but they're not, they don't know each other anymore. And sometimes we can be officially still married. We're in the, we're in the body of Christ, we're in the bride of Christ, we're saved, but the relationship has drifted. We don't know him. And John is prescribing to us how we can know God is by practicing this supernatural, sacrificial love. Because when you sacrificially love someone, you are experiencing what God does all the time. He gives love to those who are unworthy of it. That's all he does when he loves. Because we're all unworthy, right? So when he loves, it's unworthy, but you get to know him because you get to experience what he is doing all the time as you abide in him and walk in fellowship with him and see him as the source of your love. We need motivation for this. So in verses 9 and 10, John takes us back to the gospel message. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, we didn't initiate it, but that he loved us one way coming down. And he sent his son, here's here's the ultimate illustration of love, he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for sin. This is an amazing presentation of the gospel of how you can have eternal life. However, he's not preaching it to unbelievers, but to believers. He's saying, The gospel is an illustration of how you should love one another because Jesus, sent by the Father, 
is our atoning sacrifice. And that's a, that's a beautiful description of what the cross accomplished. The word atoning sacrifice, or some of you have the word propitiation, which is a, a term that means that God, God's wrath was satisfied on the cross. When all of the sin of all the world, of all mankind, of all time, was put upon Jesus, and instead of punishing us, God the Father punished Jesus, and all of his wrath towards sin was put, up, put on Jesus. So God would maintain his holiness in that he would punish all sin. But he would simultaneously, while being perfectly holy and just, also be perfectly loving because he didn't want to punish us. And he punished Jesus instead of us. That's the gospel message. John doesn't tell us right here, you need to believe in that, but that's what John spent the gospel of John saying. Whoever believes in him that he did that, will have eternal life. But he alludes to it here at the end of verse 9 when he says that we might live through him. That word live is the eternal life word live. That's not the word abiding. That's saying that in fact he sent his son into the world that we might have eternal life through him. So this is the gospel in a nutshell. And John is not telling them because that's new. They are believers but he's telling them as motivation. This is how God showed his love among us. So as, as, I, as I implore you to love one another, realize the cross is the ultimate display of the sacrificial love of God. He manifested or made it visible. Love, you see, is an is a abstract thing. Love is a concept until it becomes visible. It's invisible to understand this kind of love until you look at the cross. If a primitive person were to come into America and you're trying to explain to them what a baseball game is, it'd be really hard to explain. Never heard of it. But if you go to a baseball or softball game, now you can say, this is what they're trying to do and there's the first base and the second base. Okay, how do we know what love looks like? We know it through the cross. And to realize that the cross was premeditated by the Father. This was the plan to send his son to die, to pay for our sins. Now we start to understand God because love is known by its action. Previous chapter he said, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Hear the echo of John 15 Greater love has no man that he laid down his life. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren, brothers. So John gets it. What, what vertically has happened for us is to have a horizontal impact. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Example, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? That's not really God's love functioning in them. That little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So the true example of, of love is to lay down your life. And we should be willing to lay down our life for each other. But John's a realist and knows that in most settings, we won't actually die for each other. Okay? We, we probably won't have an opportunity to actually physically die for each other. So John immediately goes to an application and says, however, here's another way it happens. You see that your brother has a worldly, financial type of a need, and you've got 
the means. How can the love of God abide in you if, if you don't act on that? So whether it's writing a check, whether it's uh, babysitting for somebody who, who needs a break, or whether it's lending your skills or your time or an evening or whatever it might be to, to help someone, whatever the need might be, and you say, oh, I can sacrifice that because Christ sacrificed for me, and this is my way of laying down my life for someone. But if we don't do that, John warns, then it's like our experience of God's love the valve has been shut off, and we don't experience that. You know, the heart is, is, is commonly the symbol of love because it reflects the fact we usually regard love as a feeling. Oh, I just love that person. But the cross is the symbol of Christian love, rightly so. But just remember, it's an instrument of torture and death. No one has a, has, a, has a little chain probably with gallows or electric chair hanging on it. But that's really what it is. And that becomes, so the cross is, a symbol of true sacrificial love. So God made his love visible to us through the cross. But, but it gets even better in verse 11 and 12 because he says not only does he want us to see what it looks like so we can do it, he says, I want you to actually experience God's love flowing through you through you. Beloved, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Here's our one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God, here's the word, abides in us and his love is made complete in us. So since that love is coming from God to us, he says we ought to love one another. It's a command. By the way, anytime you see a command in Scripture, it's a choice. It may or may not happen. Commands, if you're a parent, you know that commands aren't necessarily followed, right? Likewise, whenever you have a command in Scripture, it means it's a choice. And so there will be some believers who are doing it and some who are not, and all of us to varying degrees are not or are better at doing it, right? So we ought to love one another. But this is, this is everyone's struggle right here to obey this. We ought to love one another. Why is he bringing up no one has ever seen God? It's not just because he throws out a random theological fact, but rather no one has seen God. But if we love one another, God is actually abiding in you. And here's where my translation says lives in you, as if to say, then you know you're saved. That's not the point. But rather it's saying, no one has ever seen God, but you can actually experience him abiding in you when you love someone sacrificially. Loving one another like Christ gives you the privilege of God himself abiding in you. We, we hopefully know theologically the Holy Spirit of God lives in us as believers. We're a temple of the Holy Spirit. We know biblically that Christ dwells in our heart by faith. These are scriptural truths. But they can kind of be on a theological shelf. And John is saying, I want so much more than that for you. He says, 
You've never seen God, and so in this life, you aren't gonna have, God's not going to show up in your room and you see him visibly and talk to you. you. No one's ever seen God, but you can actually experience him abiding in you when you love this way. This is not grit your teeth love. I'm just going to love even though I don't really like. No, that's probably pride. This is when we realize we are all out of affection. We're all out of desire. And we maybe don't even like the person in some human sense. And so we become utterly dependent on the source of love. And following the model of the cross, we make choices to sacrificially do what benefits them and not us. And John is promising that if we love one another like that, we are experiencing God abiding in us, and that's when his love is made complete. That's when his love is accomplishing its ultimate purpose. His first purpose is that he would save us because God so loved the world and gave his son that if we believe in him, we have eternal life. That's where it starts. But his love is made complete and mature when that love that saved us is translated into a transforming change in our life that we are living sacrificial love in our relationships. Who in your life needs that right now? What, what, who, who is God speaking to you about to show sacrificial love? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so loved and yet such slow learners about love. Help us understand the true sacrificial nature of your love for us, that it would transform by an an internal motivation the way we see others, and that it would become supernaturally normal that we would sacrifice ourselves for others. So we we pray for that refreshing, uh, empowering love to be a, a regular part of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.